Yo, Hungry Homies, our food world is changing. We face a lot of challenges out there. Among them, sustainability, food insecurity, preventing food waste, and feeding a world of 7 billion people. From Midwestern farmers to food entrepreneurs, from master chefs to weekend chefs, Hormel Foods has a podcast. Yes, we're okay with advertising other worthwhile podcasts here on our own House of Carbs podcast. We're very secure in our podcast status. And this is a cool uh, pod that tackles important subjects. Hormel Foods, our food journey podcast, invites us all to have a seat at the table to join in on these conversations. Visit hormelfoods.com slash podcast. Taste Buds, today's show also brought to us by our good friends at Chef Steps. There's Jules Sous Vide. You've heard me extol the virtues. You can host delicious dinner parties this holiday season with the Jules Sous Vide. Cooking with Jules is hands-free, so you can focus on your guests and your wine glass. While Jules does the work for you, there is zero guesswork, so everything's coming out exactly the way you like it when you are ready for it. To get yours... Visit chefsteps.com slash Joule and you use code CARBS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code CARBS. Joule, perfect food every time. Homies, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, we've done it. We are back. It is a post-Thanksgiving house of carbs. Food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people. I'm your hungry host, Joe House. It is part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm happy to report that we are over our post-Thanksgiving coma. You can tell I've got a hop in my step today. I am in the middle of my detox because I'm revving up for Christmas. Helping us along the way, our old homie, Andrew Knowlton. He came on around this time last year. We talked about the best new restaurants in the United States of America 2017. Knowlton has had a little bit of a change in direction in his career. He's still helping the Bon Appetits, but he's also hosting a fantastic new show on Netflix called Final Table. He also relocated to Austin, Texas. We're going to get into it with that homie, Andrew Knowlton. And of course, there shall be some food news today. But first, on the line right now, my taste buds, it is Juliet Littman. We're going to talk about the best thing I ate this week. Yo, Juliet. Hi. How was your Thanksgiving? How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? You're still in New York. I'm still in New York. Still here. You uh, spent some time with your family. Yes, so much time with my family, which was lovely. <laughs> I mean, that's and what we do, right? I have bad news, which I did not try the like super fancy pastrami. I totally failed. Just didn't really interest me. I don't know why. It's okay. I gave them a shout out. You know, uh, we talked about the best thing that we ate. Uh, last week, and I gave Zabar's a shout out on the Twitter mm-hmm. uh, because you you extolled the virtues. I mean, I of, love Zabar's, love it. 
Right. The non-Wagyu pastra- pastrami. Wagyu pastrami, is that what it is? Yeah. 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 So you you like uh, plenty of other things there. So that's fine just, that you haven't tried it. Yeah, I love it all. I mean, they have just also incredible, incredible um, cream cheese. Just the best. Yeah, we're not putting you on blast. You you yeah. you still uh, ride or die for Zabar. Yeah. Also, the babka. Oh, my God. The babka is so good. Yeah. But look, we, we, we did them last week. Let's talk about this week. The best thing you ate over the Thanksgiving holiday. Hit me. The best thing I ate over the Thanksgiving holiday, among many delicious dishes at my home that my family members and my mother made, was something we purchased. And I'm really sorry, but it's the case. We got pies from this bakery on the Upper West Side called Ore Washers. And we had an apple pie and a pumpkin pie. And I love pumpkin pie. I think it's like almost not celebrated enough because pumpkin is so oversaturated. But this pumpkin pie was really good. And I it was memorable. It was like the the leftovers were thrown out before I had the chance to finish it. And I was legit upset. Uh, uh, I'm upset. Now, what what would you say distinguishes how can you you um judge pumpkin pie? What what is what is it uh about this particular pumpkin pie experience that you would say stood out from among the morass of pumpkin pie sure. experiences. A really good texture. I thought it was like yeah. firm in, in the right way, which is sometimes hard Couldn't to Couldn't agree more. And, Could yeah. not agree more. That was really good. And also the perfect amount of cinnamon to complement the pumpkin, which is also hard to nail. It wasn't too much cinnamon, but it enhanced the general flavor. And how about the crust? What was the consistency of the crust? It was crumbly, but not too crumbly in my opinion. Um, oh, I thought I it was great. Okay. It was um, great. It's fu- and my mom made some whipped cream it- on the side. It was fantastic. So that's brilliant. See, this is the thing. The handmade whipped cream is really a game changer. You can always go get um, a delicious artisanal uh, vanilla bean ice cream if that's your jam. But, you know, putting a little bit of that uh, TLC in into the whipped cream and, and, you know, your mother's handiwork. She was She was with the spoon. She was doing some whisking. That's what takes it from, you know, regular run of the mill dessert into a proper Thanksgiving experience, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It was really good. It tasted it also like tasted like homemade without being like too fancy. Sometimes a pie or a cake is obviously from a store. It lacks the kind of like personal care put into it, but that wasn't the case with this pie. So it's funny that you have identified a dessert item as your best thing of, of the week because well, I, love I am here to make this uh, contention. I'm here to submit this for consideration, both both by you and all the hungry homies out there. I would, I would submit that desserts are, when it comes to the Thanksgiving feast and, and everything that follows, underrated. Not properly rated and not overrated, but instead underrated because of two particular uh, uh, attributes, one, it is a as you as you kind of uh, keyed in there, Miss Juliet. It's a flavor profile at Thanksgiving that your taste buds haven't had, unless you're one of these um, you know insane people, lunatics that are buying pumpkin spice lattes in August. Whenever it is that Starbucks first never. makes them available. No, I, I know you wouldn't. Um, but like the, the first 
reminder of of pumpkin back in in your life that's a that's a nice it's a it's a combination of nostalgia and uh the sweet sour gourd and the the crust that holds it and just you know a celebration of of what that moment is about so i just love the reintroduction of that flavor profile plus apple pie we are in the fall here on the east coast where we really have seasons and the apples you know are are perfect it's a perfect time to have you know great apple and a great uh crust here's the thing that i experienced we uh went to my parents and with all due respect uh i went to my brother's house my brother hosted god bless him i'd hosted a handful of years previously i was ready to go be a guest uh and with all due respect to the terrific spread that he made and further all due respect to my mother and my sister who made our family tradition an apasto, which is my mother with her Italian upbringing uh, had this tradition all, all as, as long as I can remember for Thanksgiving, we eat this great platter of Italian meats and cheeses and olives and giardinera. And, you know, you can have a little sip of wine with that. Um, it's wonderful. It's a, it's one of my va- very favorite things about Thanksgiving. So shout out moms, another killer and apostle platter, but the desserts we had after we left my brother's house, we went and had desserts with some friends, uh, to, mainly to let my little man go run around a little bit with some peers. This is a family that we know from school and the mom there, Kristen made four desserts all by hand. We had a pup a pumpkin cheesecake, which I, I was absolutely in love with. We had a... I love uh, pumpkin cheesecake. Yes. Yeah. Totally underrated. Love that that delivery of it. Um, the, the creaminess really adds to the overall... The, 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 the creamy sweetness, I guess, is the way that I would say it. These condensed... And I love it when it's just a slightly chilled. When I don't like it room temperature. I want it with a small bite of kind of cool uh, vibe to it mm-hmm. um and i love the cheesecake crust that's one of my all-time favorites so i think that's a terrific delivery mechanism for a pumpkin dessert we that had a bartlett fantastic. pear huh Ooh, Ooh bartlett yeah. pear pie bartlett pear pie oh um, wow in the sort of vein of like an apple pie with a giant big delicious you know crust that that hold the thing together and the meringue inside is exactly what you would expect. But that pear flavor, very on point for the fall. She also made this um, very decadent. Uh, it's like one of these um, chess pies, but this was like, um, it was pecans and walnuts uh, that I could detect. Very sweet, um, you know, a, a, a solid kind of uh, sweet pie that you eat a sliver of. The highlight for me was this rum bunt cake. That, that was dusted with a beautiful dusting of, of powdered sugar. It was, had so much rum in it. It was, it was li- literally like right on the edge of potentially uh, serving as an alcohol, alcoholic beverage. I asked her to, to reveal to me uh, how much rum she put in. She has so far failed to respond. I'll, I'll, I'll update if, if she chimes in, but she, she's basically disinclined to share her secrets. But the the it was firm, it was moist, and it was such a mouthful of rum, which is a delicious bite after all the other flavors of a Thanksgiving meal. That was the best thing I ate last week. 
you've really sold me. Can you can you get her to send me some? I, you know what? She would do it in a heartbeat. I'm gonna I'm gonna get her to whip one up, and we'll put it like immediately out of the oven. Uh, let it cool just the right amount, and then wrap it and get it off. I bet it'll retain its moisture. It's that kind of a dense, um, deep, rich uh, kind of cake that that I think it would it would travel well. That sounds really good. I love a, a pound cake. Me too. Th- this this time of year, the the nice thing is with all the Thanksgiving leftovers, you're allowed to have dessert leftovers every day as well. So I know. <laughs> I had dessert Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was glorious. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm in a little bit of a detox. Uh, getting ready. I mean, for, aren't we all? all of the. I mean, it's the Christmas party season. It's the Christmas dinner season. Well, it's the holiday. I, I don't mean to use Christmas. I just, uh, you know, the holidays are upon sure. us. So all of those offended. parties, all those As meals. As a Jew, yeah, I, I'm not offended. Well, I acknowledge we're, Christmas. We're, non- we're non-denominational. It's the holidays. That's all. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. One thing I just want to say, looking ahead to 2019, I was just doing some calendar studying for work purposes. Next year's holiday season is really short because... um. Basically, uh, New Year's Day being a Tuesday is kind of like worst case scenario for for many annual events, including the holiday season, because it means that next year, uh, Thanksgiving is Thursday, November 28th. So less than a month of holiday cheer next year. So use this expanded holiday season to have as much holiday dessert as possible. That's what a great great and vital contribution to all of the hungry homies <laughs> taste buds you heard it here first eat all the dessert you can get your hands on if you want some of this this uh rum cake i'll see if my friend Kristen will will come up with uh we'll we'll, we'll, we'll turn over the the recipe maybe we'll post a recipe on the uh on the gram and see and see what the taste buds have to great. say love it yeah fantastic it's gonna be good stuff all right, House. I uh, I'm looking forward to coming back for food news in a little bit. We have some good stories, I believe. Oh, we do. I'm fired up. Great job by Kyle, nephew Kyle. Great job, great job, producer nephew Kyle. All right, culinary comrades, coming up, the homie Andrew Knowlton. But before we get to brother Andrew, quick word from our pals at Snake River Farms. Snake River Farms offers some of the best beef in the world. You've heard me talking about it. They have out there a crossbreed of highly prized, purebred, Japanese Wagyu cattle and traditional American cattle. These melt-in-your-mouth cuts are intensely marbled with a robust beef flavor you can experience rich Wagyu flavors and still eat more than a couple ounces of steak. That is always the challenge with the Wagyu. It's so rich. But the way that they have combined these two beautiful breeds, Snake River Farms American Wagyu grades out well above the USDA prime beef. Most people have never had beef this marbled. No wonder it's served by chefs who know beef ranging from up-and-coming chefs to well-known culinary geniuses and their establishments. Speaking of which, you can find Snake River Farms at places like Thomas Keller's French Laundry and, per se, Wolfgang Puck's Cut and Masaharu Morimoto's Morimoto. Snake River Farms has even been served in Michelin-starred restaurants, 
James Beard award-winning kitchens and legendary steakhouses all over these great United States. Elevate your holiday meals this season with beef and pork from Snake River Farms' full line of steaks, roasts, and hams. Listen to this. They're Kurobota. Ham and pork is kind of the Kobe equivalent of ham. And how about this? House of Carbs listeners get 15% off their order. Just go to www.snakeriverfarms.com. You enter promo code HOUSE at checkout and you're getting 15% off. Go big. It's it's holiday season. Get yourself a nice uh, a bone-in, four-bone, eight-pound rib roast. Get that sucker ready for Christmas. Enter promo code HOUSE at checkout. That's 15% off your order. Go do that. All right, my taste buds. We have a guest on the line today. He has been on House of Carbs before, and it is not our practice necessarily to introduce folks as though they are brand new entrants into our beautiful hungry, homey universe, but this this guest's life has changed so dramatically since the last time we were together. I feel like I need to run through some credentials for him. 18 years at Bon Appetit magazine covering national restaurants and dining trends. Uh, among his, his famous contributions, the Bon Appetit, America's Best New Restaurants, year over year, uh, several outstanding long format digital video performances. This guest of ours coming up was uh, at Popeye's. He was at the Waffle House. He was at Katz's Deli. He is currently the master of ceremonies of the culinary spectacle on Netflix, The Final Table, Andrew Knowlton. Welcome back to House. Damn, that was a good good intro. Thank you. I mean, it took a little while to get it out. You're uh, resume just has has exploded in in, in the last <laughs> year. Um, let's talk about in the first place all of these life changes. You've done two out of the big three. You basically got a new job. You moved, and you didn't just move. You 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 moved cities. Uh, you got those two. Is there is there a baby coming along? Not that I know of. I should probably text my wife real quick, but I don't think so. <laughs> well, that would be the – that's the real trifecta. That's three for three, right? Actually, I know it's not a kid because that's impossible. That's just physically impossible. Okay. Well, yeah, I, 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 I do, I do uh, completely know what you mean. Two out of three is plenty. Um, so the last time we were convened was about this time we talked about the best new restaurants in America 2017 – while you were still deputy uh, editor at Bon Appetit. Um, and since then, I'm going to let you tell it. You've moved. You've, you've taken on new responsibilities. You have a great new um, adventure going on down in Austin, Texas. Tell us a little bit about what the hell's going on in the world of Knowlton. Well, I finally got the, uh, the balls to uh, move. I was leave Bon Appetit. I'm still an editor at large. Um, and also, after 23 years in New York City, uh, it just needed a lifestyle change, man. I had to get out of town and discover new new worlds. So my wife and I and kids moved down to Austin, Texas, where I'm happy to trade bagels for 
breakfast tacos any day of the week. Are you a breakfast taco fan? I mean, I, I've enjoyed them. Um, they're not available in a way here in Washington, D.C. Now, I, I do. There's a place called District Taco that's very close to my house that I that does fill that need. But it's not like the breakfast tacos in Austin. Do you go to you go to the PTA meetings at my school or any kind of gathering here in, in, in New York? You would always have bagels and like a tub of cream cheese. And here it's like migas tacos. It's chorizo with beans. It's like sausage and queso. It's like, it's the best. It's like, I'm seriously probably going to gain about 15 pounds just in, in breakfast tacos alone. So I'm, for that reason, I'm happy I moved to Austin, Texas. So how did you guys select Austin? I mean, uh, it, there are many obvious reasons for one to be attracted to Austin. It is one of America's fastest growing uh, cities with, with good reason. But how about you in the in the Knowlton household? How did you and your wife come up with Austin? I finally, I finally, like for forever, I was the one kind of dictating like why we lived in New York and where we went. And it was time to follow my wife. Um, and she, she opened a hotel, Carpenter Hotel, which I invite everyone to come down and stay right next to Zilker Park. If you know, it's like where ACL festivals. Um, so she opened up a hotel called the Carpenter. So that's kind of the reason we came down here and just lifestyle, man. Just being able to like go out and run and not angry, you know, taxi cabs and like, and the weather here, man. It's like, it's like California. It's crazy. It's like seventy degrees all the time, except when it's one hundred and twenty. But I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, give us the timeline here. Um, d- did you? Uh, I I know from from its publication that you still. Uh, made your substantial contribution to Bon Appetit's Best New Restaurants in America 2018. Were you traveling while this move was taking place? How did that all go down? No, like, you know, I do most of that in kind of March, April, May. And uh, I'd already knew that I was leaving, but this was kind of my, um, you know, who knows what will happen next year with the Best New Restaurants. But this was kind of the three-month period. I kind of dove into this one. And usually I, I had help from uh, Julia Kramer, and I had her help editing side this year. But I did most of the travel myself, and it was kind of is my swamp because I do hope to contribute going forward. But this was kind of like the last time where I, you know, clothing that we've talked about and like the abuse that I do like to my body physically going out and eating, you know, six meals a day. Um, I don't, I'm not going to miss that aspect because sitting in a hotel room alone and just depressed you know, you can't talk to anybody because every, you know, I even call my mother and she's like, I don't want to listen to you. Like, he's paying for you to travel around the country and eat. Um, so you're just alone with your thoughts and your stomach ache. <laughs> it is a tough one to get any, it's a tough one to get any sympathy for. Wow. How, I mean, how, I, I know. Yeah. So, so um, I want to talk about your experience in Austin so far, because I just was fortunate enough to have on the show Matthew Odom, uh, food critic down uh, in Austin. I'm going to botch the name of the publication. It's the Austin. Uh, that's it. And he, you know, walked us through kind of the current Austin 
seen, and he's an old hand there. He's lived there um, for a long time. How about you as kind of a new entrant, a new arrival? Obviously, the breakfast tacos have been a revelation. And obviously, lifestyle-wise, um, it's pretty different from New York City. What about in terms of the food that you've encountered and, and just sort of different ingredients and, and the, the palate down there? How has that um, been? Because you, you have the benefit of working with your wife on the, um, this restaurant inside of her no, new hotel, right? Exactly, and we're and we're eagerly waiting Odom's review, which is kind of hard for me to some extent. Be on the other side where you're waiting for this critic, and you're kind of like, oh, "What do critics know?" Like I find myself actually saying that, <laughs> to and I'm like, "Jesus." Uh-huh. Uh, but I will say it's a lot easier being a critic than it is ever opening a, a restaurant or being involved in in a restaurant. Um, I think the crazy thing, like I've been to Austin probably 50 times over the past several years and and I didn't realize how pervasive the Smex and the barbecue scene is here. Like, yeah, of course we know like Austin has great barbecue and people walk hard, which is just south of Austin. And you hear the Tex Mex thing, but it informs every social decision you make. It, like people go out in huge groups, they go out when UT wins a football game. They go out when UT loses a football game. They go out for any significant event. They go have Tex-Mex. They go to Matzel Rancho. They go to Maudie's. They go to all these places. And I didn't realize that, like, people don't ask, like, do you want to go out to eat? They say, like, do you want to go have Tex-Mex? It's almost like Tex-Mex is the word for, like, going out to eat. It's pretty incredible. And then the other thing I realized about the barbecue scene is you only go to a barbecue place to live in Austin most of the time when somebody's visiting from out of town. So if house, if you come to Austin, I'm going to take you to barbecue, but then I'm probably not going to have barbecue again until some other carpetbagger comes down from the Northeast and expects barbecue. Well, so why, why is that? That's really interesting. I'm not what I anticipated hearing. Well, why do you think that is? I, because I think... I think when you're surrounded by something all the time, you kind of take it for granted. And I think some people in Austin probably take barbecue for granted. And the other thing is, you just can't eat that much of it. Brisket is like a serious thing. Like you have one bite of Franklin brisket, and it's amazing, or Tina's Tex Mex uh, barbecue. You have one bite, and you're like done. You're like like a nap. There's a reason you know, barbecue places down here aren't open for dinner. It's primarily just a early morning kind of lunch thing. And that's because you can sleep the rest of the day. And it's, yeah. I don't know what the equivalent is like DC or, or in, in New York or even LA is, but it's like it's one of those weird things. Like I, I smell it all over the place. You, know, you can see the smoke filling up from the different barbecue joints. But it's almost like it's a it's almost like a visiting the Statue of Liberty or something in New York. It's like a tourist thing that I still love, but it's just you don't go until somebody's like, Hey, let's go have barbecue who's visiting. It's kinda of weird. Well, I, as a visitor, and I, I have been fortunate enough to eat barbecue in Austin. We went to La Barbecue when it was still just the trailers and the out- barbecue. It, it's spectacular. Out the outdoor picnic tables. But to me, the experience that I had of it, and I'm and I'm uh, responding to your uh, attempt to analogize it, it honestly was like a Thanksgiving meal in the sense that it was a long meal. 
there was a lot of um it was a surprising number of sides that we enjoyed and we sampled a, lo a lot of different meats i mean it wasn't just the brisket we had the brisket we had the sausage i think there was some bird in there we had a little a little fowl i mean we we kind of covered all of all of the bases uh and to to your point you, i there needed to be uh, and in a, a time between after eating and whatever the next activity was where you just go and basically, um, you know, you, where it's permissible to be comatose, uh, permissible to perhaps take off all your clothes and lay down on the cold tile of the bathroom floor, like that kind of, uh, vibe. No. And I think the other thing that I've realized about myself is like, now that I'm in a climate where I can grill and smoke, you know, my own stuff at home, I I think people who are curious about barbecuing often do their own smoking in their backyard. Like, sure, they'll go to Franklin or they'll go to, you know, La Barbecue, but it's also like something that you invite people over to your house to try, like your homemade brisket or your ribs or whatever. And, you know, like how Aaron Franklin got started, like, you know, just cooking in his own backyard and he turned it into a business. And like, if it's Saturday morning in Texas or Sunday, you know, you can ride around in the neighborhood and you can just see the home smokers all going because it's like just a social activity that happens on the weekend. So I think it's, you know, people are doing it at home as much as they are going out. That makes a ton of sense. Now we have to do your, your wife a solid here. She had the extraordinarily good judgment to um, pick Austin, but she was motivated by this opportunity to come and create uh, the hotel and, and the restaurant. Can we talk a little bit about what the idea is behind the hotel and then by extension, the restaurant? I know uh, I've taken great comfort from the fact that the, there's a club sandwich on the menu. That was one of the, the most important things that you guys established. But, but I just want to hear a little bit about like the inspiration and, and what the idea is. So it's in a, it's um the Carpenter Hotel and it's in an old Carpenter's Union building which sits in a pond grove just near Zilker, Zilker Park, which is kind of like the mall, if you will, of DC or Central Park of of New York. That that's what it is to Austin. And it's an original building, you know, from the forties that they left intact, and that's where the Carpenter's Hall restaurant is, which is kind of a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then behind that, they built a beautiful terracotta um, um, hotel, which is is 93 rooms. Um, but, and I had, you know, I, I kind of, we have this amazing chef, Gray Nona, that used to be at Olame Restaurant, which is a, a very, still a very well thought of place in, in Austin. But I think one of the things was, for me, somebody who eats out all the time, you get, you get, a lot of amazing meals, but you also get kind of ridiculous meals or I don't know, just too much tweezer food. And, and, and I've, one of the great things about hotel restaurants, I thought is like having those classic, those things that appeal to both locals and tourists alike. And, and like you said, the club sandwich, like if I was going to be involved in a hotel, there had to be a club sandwich and there had to be a crap ton of mayonnaise on it. There had to be a delicious burger. There had to be like a really good chopped, salad. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of what we wanted to do. But the other thing, and you know, this from traveling too, is like the places that I most relate to are the places that have a sense of place. Don't like going to 
Kansas City and feeling like I could be in a hotel in LA. I'd like it to have the identity of a place. And, and Austin's growing so fast and people are quite um, concerned with the level of the growing pains going on. And I think that's what we wanted to do the most of all is create an environment, a place that felt kind of like old Austin. So kind of the thing that we've, it's not a slogan or anything, but it's kind of like we have new eyes on old Austin and wanted to kind of part of the growth of the city, but also remember where we came from. And I think that's kind of the vibe of the Carpenter's Hotel. Okay. So I, I like very much that sentiment. How have you gone about, you know, capturing that? Give me a couple examples of what, how old Austin is kind of convened at your place. Well, we're talking about barbecue, like that whole tradition comes from the German Czech um, immigrants that came over. And that's why you have brisket. That's why you have this amazing sausage. Um, and the other big thing that's chicken fried steak is huge in, in Texas. So we kind of, we took, instead of doing chicken fried steak, we have a whole half a chicken that's pounded flat and then breaded and fried. So that's our chicken schnitzel, which is of course a German, German, Austrian kind of Czech thing. Um, we have spetzel on the menu, which is kind of like the kind of the little pasta that's big. Um, we of course have our own kind of smoked sausage that we do, but it's made with lamb. Um, the seasons in Austin are really weird because it's so hot that a lot of the vegetables burn out. So it, a lot of it comes back to it's less ingredient-driven than you would think maybe the way California or even New England is in the summer and more kind of uh, technique-driven. Um, so we have some of those kind of like we're in a pecan grove, so we have that classic Texas pecan pie. Um, so we try to bring those elements because we want it to be a neighborhood restaurant as much as it is a hotel destination. But what, I mean, one of the great things I love about hotel restaurants is the bar and coming in and being able to mingle with locals and not just people who are from afar. So I think it's just doing, you know, having those kind of key ingredients. And then the huge part is like Austin is kind of, they build themselves as live, you know, music capital of the world. So our playlist is like very much rooted in that kind of text kind of country western but also all the cool gary clark jr and leon bridges and kind of young folks who are coming out of texas as well so the music is like a huge part we have like over 500 records that are available for people to play in the lobby um and it's just cool and laid back you know it's hopefully you feel like you're you're not at a hotel you're at a, a person who happens to have a pool in their own restaurant that's fantastic um Okay, we have we have Austin in place. Now I want to talk a little bit about this show on on Netflix. How did the final table come to be and and how did your involvement come to be? Well, been been on some food shows before and I was I've I heard was that. Honest with you, I was Yeah, you've heard that. I was a little bit I was a little bit the way that chefs are, like I was a little bit worried like cuz a lot of the shows out there, they either like sabotage or they don't necessarily take cooking seriously. It's more of just like, you know, hey, get out there and cook and burn something so we can yell at you. Um, and so I got this random call and I was like, oh, uh, you know, not another show, but like, you know, it's like oh, I'm not sure if I really want to do that. I'm a really serious guy. Um, kidding. And and <laughs> I I got the joke. You got it. Um, I got this, and then they started 
talking to me and I was like, okay, sounds like a cool show. I was like, where is it going to be on? And they say Netflix. And I was like, kind of my jaw dropped. I was like, Netflix is like a verb now. It's like Google, you know? You don't say, yeah. oh, I'm going to watch TV. You say, I'm going to watch Netflix, even if you're not watching Netflix. Um, so for some reason or the other, they chose me to be to be the host of the show. And next thing I know, I'm in L.A. on a humongous set where they just got filming like Star Trek, uh, kind of in charge of these 24 chefs in this amazing kind of thing. And I think the thing, hopefully when people watch it, it's streaming now, is it kind of is, to me it feels like the next step, the evolution of, of food competition shows. It's not, like I said, sabotage. It's not people drinking behind the scenes and then throwing them onto TV to kind of make a mockery of them. It's it's kind of combined chef's table, if people know that program on Netflix, and a little bit of of that master chef, top, top chef kind of unscripted reality thing. But it's, it's just chefs doing beautiful cooking. And, and, and the other thing is not, it's not necessarily an American show. It's an international show because we have competitors from, you know, Ecuador, we have Scotland, Australia, uh, India from all over the world. And, and with Netflix kind of reach to a hundred and that's like 190 countries. It it goes out there all at once to the entire world. I'm 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 not even you don't even hear you don't even hear my voice in Italy. I'm dubbed like Seinfeld now. <laughs> well, I uh well I started to watch the very first episode. I actually watched half of it because I just wanted to get a feel for what it was about. But I deliberately interrupted my viewing of the first episode because I knew I was gonna have you on and I wanted to kind of see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears the 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 idea but then I wanted to sort of talk it through with you to make sure that I'm going to kind of receive it in the way that that you and the folks behind the show intend to deliver it. So a couple of of reactions for me. You mentioned the big uh sound stage. It is a gigantic platform and it looks like it is perhaps from outer space. That clearly is deliberate, right? <laughs> it, no, I, I didn't really know that when I was filming it, but now that I watched it and I hear other people, it does look a little like it's on a spaceship. It literally, yeah, like yeah, we're we're on Galactica. Thing. Yes, but I will say to you, it delivered at least to me as a first-time viewer um, a, a sense of epic, uh, epic, and. I thought that must be deliberate um, as a way of setting the stage, so to speak, for the incredible assortment of chefs from all walks of life. Because the thing that I uh, immediately responded to was the superb quality of chef that, that has been pulled together for this thing, right? That, that was a huge thing. Is like when, when I asked, like, well, who, who are the chefs that you have competing and they start throwing, you know, out these names like Mark Best, whose restaurant, uh, you know, before he, you know, did, did other things, was on the you know, world's top 50 list for like eight years. Or, you know, w one chef from Japan who had two Michelin stars. Like these weren't these weren't uh, women and men who had just graduated from culinary school. They, these were like the who's who. And I don't think there's been that international level of talent 
um, that they got. And that's like, that's the power of, I think that's the power of Netflix um, to be able to get that talent. And then the, then the caliber of judges who, who are these kind of culinary gods like Grant Ackett in Chicago as Alinea or Narasawa from Japan or Antonia Duris from Mugaritz in Spain or Anthony Peak from France. Like it goes on and on. Enrique Olvera from Mexico. And it's like that, that kind of international talent has never been on there. And I, to put that into the same room and then also to have that integrity just to have like, it's almost like having a musician or anybody like a, just putting that art form out there and that natural tension that people crave in kind of reality shows and unscripted television or whatever you want to call it, that naturally comes out in cooking because there's heat and there's, you know, they have partners that they're cooking with and, you know, chefs have egos. I don't know if you've heard, but, and that naturally comes out in the show, but also, you know, nobody's the evil person here. There's no good cop, bad cop on the show. And I think that's, that's my biggest takeaway. That's been a lot of people's response, like on social media to me is like, I love it because it's just, it's just beautiful the way it's filmed and it just tells a story and it's kind of feels like that next step in cooking shows. Yeah. So I, I wanted to pick up on, on, on that idea, um, part of the thing that I also, I will say, I felt kind of relieved that the there there was no um, artifice in terms of you know try, trying to build drama by by challenges in terms of the cooking. So everybody has a beautiful um, full workstation, and the pantry is also gleaming silver and appears to have every ingredient every every food ingredient available on planet earth and uh the folks are given like a full hour at least for the portion of the show that i watched to create you know the the dish for the first competition in each episode which i also was like okay so this is really going to be about execution and you know some some kind of thoughtful uh and, and innovative kind of a uh, cooking approach is that is that by design yeah, it's 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 not like sure personalities play into you know a TV persona, but at the end of the day, it's all about can you cook? Can you walk into a kitchen or into a country? Because each of the each of the episodes, there's ten episodes, and for the first nine, we quote unquote travel to a different country. So that first episode you watched is the Mexico episode. So eat that pantry for each country was transformed into that country. So when it came down to India, you had this amazing array of spices. When it was Brazil, you had crazy fruit that, you know, you you rarely see in the United States. And then for that first half of that show, they have to cook the national dish of that country. So for Mexico, I'm not giving anything secret away here, but for Mexico, it was the taco. And the cool thing about this is, I don't know if you saw this and what you watched, but you get these a world, you know, this Michelin two-star chef from Japan. The last time the dude had a taco was 30 years ago. Yeah, he's not going to Taco Bell when he's in high school. I thought that was really interesting um, for for food folks who I had this preconceived idea, like the walk of life that I imagine um, acclaimed chefs like um, have been assembled for this show. 
I imagine they're constantly traveling like half, you know, some portion of the year they're traveling to go experience other cuisines and for their own inspiration. And they must be all well versed in, in, you know, the variety of foods all across the world and, and have some idea of, of how to do it. So it was like a real revelation. Um, the gentleman, I think, said the last time I had a taco was 1986 or something like that. And the last time the, the uh, Graham, who was the chef from Scotland, who had to be dubbed because nobody could understand his Scottish, um, is he, he hadn't had sushi. He had had sushi once, and that was in an airport. So it's like, it also reminded me, like, being from the United States, the crazy, like, access we have to all the, the foods of the world. And in some of those countries, they just don't. So that naturally was that that kind of, conflict and, and, and kind of um, kind of that was the point of like dude, dude's never made a taco in his life like he's dedicated his life to this one food and then he has to do this with cameras in his face and so that was interesting but you would think that like let's say the Mexico chefs who are from um, or whatever chef was from that country would have an advantage when we were say in Mexico but it was almost like the judges were harder on the people from their country. It's almost like my girls don't play any sports, but I imagine like if I had a, if I had a girl who was involved in sports and I was the coach, you're almost harder on the, on your own son or daughter than you are the other kids. Yeah. I, I watched um, enough. I watched enough of that first episode to observe. Um, there were, I think two gentlemen with Mexico in their background or Mexican cooking in their background. And and both of them felt you could see them both. They they were confident, but they are they also felt extraordinary pressure to you know deliver something that was going to be re- regarded in the highest uh, caliber of 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 the dish. Right, and I think a lot of times, like if if somebody came to us and said, "Hey, you have to make Thanksgiving dinner." we have this context of Thanksgiving dinner, and like, oh, I have to make my mom's like souffléed you know, sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top or something. Cause I'll get killed if I don't or whatever. But to have like a Japanese chef make Thanksgiving dinner is a lot cooler to, you know, the American judges. I, I, I haven't got there yet. Uh, I know that, um, the U S is one of the episodes. Is that what, what, is that the challenge? That, that was the hard thing is like, what, what would you say the national dish of the United States is a hamburger? That's what everybody says. Is a cheeseburger, <laughs> hamburger. Yeah. But then like you get down to it, it's like, well, what food is actually, you know, from the United States? You know, mostly Native American stuff. So we ended up going with Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving. So they had to make everything. And so to see this Ecuadorian chef or these French chefs and most of them had never had Thanksgiving before. Like we take it for granted, like, oh, you know, mashed potatoes, you know, stuffing, cranberries. So you get all these crazy things. And, and the people who won, um, I mean, it's all out there right now, but I'm not going to tell people who haven't heard. It's like this crazy, somebody who wasn't from the United States and totally reinvented Thanksgiving. And it just, it blew the judges away. One of the judges was Sam Sifton, who is the food editor of the New York Times, former restaurant critic. And he, we were talking off stage. He's like, I never would have thought of that. But that's, that's kind of where that cool thing happens on the show is like, if I told you how to cook fish water, which is the national dish of Brazil, you have no idea 
most likely what to do, but you, you're such a good chef that you would invent this thing and in this turn almost invent a new dish. So that was a pretty cool thing to watch happen. That's that's incredible. Yeah. If you said to me, make fushwada, I would end up you you would get sausage and rice and a, and a kiss from me on the forehead. That's what you would get. Um, tell me about So I, I don't want to uh, spoil for anybody because, um, you know, there, there's 10 episodes and each week uh, somebody um, gets I, I don't want to call it voted off, but um, somebody what, what is What are you guys calling it? There's 12, there's 12 teams of two. And with each episode, uh, w- what we say, House, is you have cooked your final plate. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know. Those be, and I, hopefully my, I get better in episode like six, very dramatic and trying to be like survivor host or amazing race. Cause those guys are like really good. Um, and so they get eliminated. So then, after those nine episodes, then all those amazing chefs who were the you know culinary gods come back, and then you get down to four chefs, and they're all cooking for that final seat at the final table. Um, and so, like that's what's cool about it is, and I'm, and this I know it sounds like I'm giving you a line, but there's no monetary reward. Nobody gets a restaurant after this. The only thing they get is the admiration of their peers, which sounds so cheesy, but I've realized that chefs don't care about a lot of things, but they do care about cooking for Grant Ackett's or cooking for these names and being accepted by them. If they sit there and say, wow, I just cooked a dish and Enrique Olvera liked it. It's, it's almost like football. It's like when, when you see Randy Moss be like, you know, to whomever Julio Jones, like he's one of the greatest wide receivers of all time. That means more probably to Julio Jones than, you know, 10 games catching 100 yards plus. Like, it's that admiration. And that's to see that and witness it. Now, the the thing that's weird about this show that I think we all kind of were nervous about, and I think people are watching it, is this is not this is a unscripted show, reality show, that all 10 episodes are released at once. So you could, you know, go to the last episode and ruin the whole thing. I don't know why anyone would do that. That's like going to the end of Jaws and seeing the shark get blown up. Like you don't care about the shark um, or reading the end of a, the last page of a book. And so it's but, important, I think for people to watch each episode in that. So you kind of build that relationship with the characters. Well, the, the reason that I asked is because I'm now very, very interested in the U S episode and this Thanksgiving meal, because Thanksgiving is still fresh in my mind and fresh in my mouth. I mean, I'm still working off the uh, the leftovers. Yeah, and and I don't, but I don't want to ruin for myself any of the potential drama of folks who may have cooked their last plate um, in in previous episodes. I will notice who who I observed in the first very first episode, what I've watched so far of the cooking in Mexico. If I fast forward to the U.S., I'm going to see who's already missing. But maybe it's it's a worthwhile. Uh, endeavor in that respect. Maybe I guess make that. Sacrifice. I mean, I think it's just like anything. I mean, yeah, you can you can skip to the end of you know find out who Kaiser Sose is at the end of Usual Suspects. But what do you? I mean, what does that what does that accomplish? Yeah. All right. So I'll, I'll be patient. I'll just wait. What episode is the U.S.? What episode is the Thanksgiving episode? I want to say it's episode five. So it's right back in the in the middle. Uh, All right, so I can after after this conversation, I can go binge. I'll watch tonight. I give myself permission 
having heard you describe the show a little bit, to go watch, and I'll binge all the way through five, and then I'll I'll hit you up and let you know uh, how I felt about the the Thanksgiving outcome because I I'm really blown away. Italy's the one that like people have been texting me and being like, "Whoa, that was brutal!" Like that was like from the judges because the Italians. Well, I don't want to say about the Italians because I don't get a bunch of Instagram direct messages about Italians. <laughs> They're ruthless, though. They're ruthless. They are, the, they are the most critical people of their own food. It's like to cook pasta for an Italian. Hell no. And I want no yeah. part of that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so uh, that's an episode to look forward to. What number is that one? I want to say that if we're if, if ten is the last episode, I want to say it's like six. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna binge. I'm gonna get myself caught up through Thanksgiving because it's just so topical, and I can just taste all those flavors still at the moment. Uh. Those first couple episodes are kind of like any kind of series where you're getting to know the characters, and there's a lot of them. It's almost like a Dickens novel. So you got to kind of oh. stay with it those first couple episodes, and then you kind of pick your favorites, and then as they start getting picked off, you start rooting for people or you don't necessarily like somebody's vibe or whatever. So it's like once you get to like that third and fourth episode, then you're then you're hooked. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, highly recommend everybody. It's The Final Table. It's on Netflix. You get to see Andrew Knowlton, one of the three most handsome men in, in food television, dressed up and his hair is done up. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful delivery. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I want to touch real quickly on the 2018 best new restaurants in America. Um, I hope, hopefully you can dust off those memory banks a little bit. Uh, uh, they're, they're well, in- I still feel them. I still feel them in my gut. <laughs> so it was uh, a very funny coincidence and, and, you know, the two had nothing to do with each other. Bill Simmons and I, uh, in like April or May, got together on this very House of Carbs podcast and talked about, we rated the uh, teams that were in the NBA playoffs, we rated those as food cities. And you're not going to be surprised to hear, or maybe you will be surprised to hear, Oklahoma City did not fare very well. We, it did not get a very high ranking. We ranked all 16 teams. Nor should were, it have. Okay, okay, well... How about this? Uh, ba- basically, like 60 days, 90 days after we did that, out comes the, the best new restaurants in America. And I'll be gosh darn if the number one restaurant is not, is how do you pronounce it? Is it none such or is it none as such? How do you say none it? Such, yeah. Almost none such, yeah. None such. The record label, yeah. None such. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, I was as surprised as you guys were. Like, I'd been to Oklahoma City a few times. It's got like a good bar scene. There's some like they have these onion burgers that people seem to like there. But I was like one night, like one of these restless nights where I didn't know where I was going to go, and I was on Instagram, and it kind of through one of these like wormholes on on social media. I came across this plate of food, which actually wasn't even a plate. It was it was kind of pebble ice that was made into a plate. And then there were all these kind of preserved and pickled vegetables on it. And it was just like the most striking dish that I had seen. And then when I dug deeper, I found out, oh, is this restaurant that had just opened in Oklahoma City called Nunsuch. So I was in the airport in in um, Seattle, 
And there was not a direct flight to Oklahoma City, so I had to go through Salt Lake. And I was like, the flight was delayed. And it was just one of those awful like business trips where you're like, just fuck it. You're like, I'm done. I'm going home. I'm calling it a day. <laughs> yeah. The world can wait. And I got on the plane, and I went anyway because I felt like I had to go there. And I sat down at the restaurant, and it's just right across from where the memorial is from the Oklahoma City bombings uh, in the 90s. And yes. I was just floored. I was blown away that not only this food existed in Oklahoma City, but also that this food existed in my travels this year. And I, I, I told the chefs after the fact, I was like, Oklahoma City had little to none to do with why you were the number one restaurant. It That restaurant could have been in San Francisco. That restaurant could have been in New York. It was just so unexpected. Wow, that's that's incredible. Now, I, I was proud to see uh, DC entrant in the top five. Our local, I guess you would call it... Um, well, how would you 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 define the the cuisine? It's it's because I, I I'll I'll bungle it. I know what I think. Well, it is, I mean but... it's it's it's. I mean, I guess the 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 unnuanced way of saying it is probably Middle Eastern. I think it's the food of the Levant um, kind of region. So it it borrows from Israeli food, Lebanese food, um, Egyptian, kind of all of that. But it's have yeah. you been the Maidan? I, I have, and I I was gonna, a little North African influence as well, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, the, the 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 most noteworthy thing in terms of the physical experience of Maidan is the gigantic. I don't. Is it a hearth? What 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 do you call a massive fire pit? I mean, it's it, like a fire pit. It's like a. I, I mean, I'm still amazed that the city of DC like allows a fire in the middle. I mean, it's huge. It's like an enormous open air furnace. But it's inside of a building. Yes, it's in an old uh, where they used to repair back in the the days uh, old trolleys, and that that system that they have where the the um, where the kind of duct goes out taking the smoke out was was where they would lift the trolleys off to repair them. As the story goes, I was told. So it's like imagine this old trolley building, and then this fire in the middle where. They're cooking this amazing like bread that they just like hand out to you, and it's warm. And then they have all these condiments, um, and then they have this lamb shoulder. I don't know how if you had the lamb shoulder. I had the, of course, I, I I had the lamb shoulder. You can't walk in and see it now. The the one thing I will say about my experience there is I was there kind of um, around this time a year ago or so. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was at least winter. It was definitely winter. I don't know whether it was December or, uh, January that I, I visited, but, um, it was, it was to me a great restaurant to eat when it's cold because of all of those, first of all, the fire, the warming effect of the fire, but also the cuisine itself, like, um, the, the, the handmade, right out of the oven, so to speak, bread that you're talking about and that sort of nurture, nurturing, revitalizing kind of experience and, and the dips and so forth, you know, from all across that, um, I'll, I'll use the word, I'll, I'll use your term, Middle Eastern palate, you know, they're all, all kind of a nurturing, I don't know what the right way to say it is, revitalizing kind of vibe. Yeah. And, and just the entrance, like it's down kind of one of these alleyways, and then you see this door kind of out of nowhere, and you kind of look at your dining companion, you're like, is this the right place? And then you kind of enter into this 
other world. And I think that's whether it's Nunsuch or Maidan in DC or even Ugly Baby, which was on the list this year in Brooklyn, is like they transport you for those for those few hours that you're dining, they transport you and take you away to some other place. And I think that's what ultimately the best whether it's a TV show or whether it's a restaurant, those are what the best things do. Well, there you go. That's a great way to wrap it. Andrew Knowlton, you are always welcome on House of Carbs. Hungry homies, I can't uh, recommend the final table enough. I have one final request. I'm going to come down and visit. Here, here's what I want to know. You you just talked about, I didn't know this uh, existed in, in the hotel, the lobby. I need, if I'm coming down, I need to know, do you have some big boys in the jukebox for me? Of course I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Alejandro Escobedo is he in? The, is he in the mix? Of course. Okay. You know he plays here all the time too. I mean, I he comes up to Washington once a year, and that's a must see concert anytime he comes. A- Andrew Knowlton, as always, exceeding expectations. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Al. All right, Taste Buds, as always, my immense gratitude and thanks to the homie, Andrew Knowlton. Of course, we have some food news coming up here. But before we get there, quick word from our friends at Sonos. Upgrade all of your entertainment this beautiful holiday season with brilliant room-filling sound, courtesy of the Sonos Beam. It is the smart, compact sound bar for your TV. And let me tell you, it is aesthetically beautiful. It's super easy to set up and even pairs with your existing remote. And even though it is connected to your TV, you can still play music, podcasts, podcasts, or audiobooks when it's off. Pair it with the Sonos One, which is a mighty mini smart speaker that fits perfectly on your countertop for an even richer listening experience in more rooms of your house. Once you connect Sonos One and beam over the Wi-Fi, you can play music in the kitchen while someone might be watching TV in the living room, or you group all your speakers together to play in sync. Everything works seamlessly. I mentioned the beauty of the beam, the sound bar at the TV. You can barely see it, but it packs a punch. Speaking of a punch that you might want to listen to in all rooms of your house, my eight-year-old is punching us with lots and lots of Michael Jackson this, these days. I'm totally fine with it. Filling the house with Eddie, Are You Okay? Wh- which song is that, Producer Kyle? You know that one. Yeah, of course. Uh, Smooth Criminal. That's Smooth Criminal. I can't, I can't do it. It's a, it's a damn good song. Michael Jackson in the house this holiday season goes down smooth. Go to Sonos, S-O-N-O-S, dot com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your home sound system. All right, Taste Buds, it is now time for Food News. Yo, Juliet. I'm back. <laughs> you didn't go far. No, I didn't go far. <laughs> I did not go far. I'm excited to share these stories with you. They're pretty good. It's a fun season for stories. It, it really is. There's a good diverse blend here. Uh, as yeah. always, one of my favorite stories comes from England. Are you ready to hear about it? Always. These are my okay. favorites. Okay. The headline's a doozy. 
It's from The Mirror, which is a great uh, tabloid that I often read. Mother-in-law charging family 17 pounds a head for Christmas lunch. And then the deck. A man and his wife were completely shocked by his mom's request, and they're even debating making alternative plans for Christmas. So I just want to say, to begin with, I like how it's written as mother-in-law charging family because it's like written from the wife's perspective, like the kind of like the angry wife, just sort of playing upon the age-old stereotype of a mother-in-law and a wife hating each other. That's just a, gr- yes. a great way to start, and I expect nothing less of the mirror. The British tabloids, for those who aren't familiar, often trade in cliches and stereotypes as a shorthand, and it's like bad for society, but fun for reading. Um, <laughs> and so here's a story. <laughs> Okie dokie. Uh, this one mother-in-law has decided to charge a family, her family 17 pounds a head to attend her Christmas dinner. Her son was completely shocked by the request and he's now considering skipping the celebrations. Her daughter-in-law shared the story on parenting website Mumsnet to see what other people thought of this policy. And surprisingly, lots of people agree, of which I am one of them. This woman, the wife, wrote, am I being unreasonable to think you should ask family to pay for their Christmas lunch? My partner has just told me that his mother, who he's having Christmas lunch with, said she wants to charge. I'm going to my family's for lunch, so invited him, but also he has had it there all his life with his grandparents and siblings, too. She said she doesn't want to do it all from scratch and wants to get it all pre-done, so it's more money, which I understand, but he's got it and feels like he wants to come with my family now. <laughs> I uh, really love this story. <laughs> And then there's a lot on mom's net. There's a lot of back and forth. But here's the thing. If she's if 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 the mother is buying the meal, then, yeah, everyone could contribute. 17 pounds a head seems steep. I need to know how many people she's buying for. Otherwise, it sounds like she might be profiting off it. But let's say she was cooking. I just what feel 17, like 17 pounds is a ton what, for takeout. 30 bucks. What is that now? Uh, 20 it's bucks. Like, it's, like it's like 21, 22. Oh, OK. It's like it, Kyle's right. It's like one. It's like one. It's like one point five, basically. At this point, a little bit less. One point four. Tough times for the British economy. <laughs> Shout out so, Brexit. Yeah. So, if she was cooking, the mother or mother-in-law, I wouldn't blame her for charging because I just feel like so often the burden of hosting becomes like a, a case for martyrdom, and I don't want that. Like I would rather like contribute somehow, and and I don't really like cooking that much. So I would like to contribute financially. And then it's like, there's no burdens. Like, yeah, I've paid you for this. Like, it's a service, it's an exchange. Let's just be even and enjoy the meal. Like, I think it's a good it's a good baseline for having a family meal. Well, that would counsel in favor then of overpaying because you're, you're not just, it wouldn't be a single one-for-one transaction. You wouldn't just be paying for whatever the ingredients were or whatever. You want to be on equal footing with the person that 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 is uh, invested yeah. all of the time and hard work, yeah. so there's a there's a service component to this contribution as well, and both of which I I find entirely reasonable. I'm not going to take issue with it, but you wouldn't just see how much was the food and then we split it up. You put something on top of that and say, hey, 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 "Moms, I I recognize the hustle. You don't need to hold it over everybody's head." Here's yeah. what did you want? You asked for twenty five. Here's fifty. Here's, Here's fifty from just me. Yeah. Whoa, fifty. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, do you really want okay. her to STFU? Do you really yes. want her to STFU? Yeah. Then just, just go over the top, splash the pot on moms. Great but point. I, 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 I like the idea of there being some kind of recognition for for all the hard work, and especially the clincher to me of the story was when you got to the line about her wanting to go out and purchase the stuff because, you know, that it's it's still a hustle. She still has to pick the menu, solicit input, 
uh, be sensitive to any allergies, perhaps, and then get out there with their own two feet in their own vehicle, go pro procure it, bring it back, present it. And here's the thing, and this is the component that I would be willing to pay for. I want to give a special shout out to all the folks that participate in this aspect of it. It's the cleanup that's the murder. The cleanup is the thing that sucks. It's 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 the uh, afterwards, the after effects, you know, that, that take so much time. So I'd be more than willing to, to do whatever gesture um, is appropriate to, 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 you know, pay it forward, essentially. That's not an issue. The cleanup's not an issue in my house because my brother and my father are neat freaks. And so at all of our family events, they just take charge. I don't even attempt to help. I'm like, shoot away often. But that's great that, that those two have that uh, in their DNA. That's yes. not the case necessarily in my household. Me and my brothers, my dad, that's not in our, that's not in our program. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we stand with you, mother who's charging. I support it. Um, Another person I quasi-respect, by the way, is Shaquille O'Neal, who is involved in Food News. Uh, thanks to Food Beast, we have some information on his new restaurant in Las Vegas. They wrote the NBA legend Big Chicken Restaurant, which is called um, Big Chicken Shack, opened in October off the Strip, which is like questionable, but okay. I'll never question Shaq's business acumen. And he built an entire Facebook watch show around the process from the ideation period all the way to the celeb-driven grand opening. Shaq told Food Beats he didn't really plan on expanding the chicken restaurant. His mind changed a few weeks later as Carnival Cruz that the big man would be setting up his big chicken shack aboard the brand new Carnival Radiance in 2020. But the emergence of cold chicken shops such as Howlin' Ray's in Los Angeles, which I haven't been to yet, or a quickly expanding chain such as Raising Cane's, fried chicken is being more sought after than ever. Um, so Shaq's in the chicken game. I just wanted you to know. So he, and, a and bunch they, of reactions. He's getting good Yelp reviews, by the way. Bunch of good, getting, bunch of reactions for you. Stars. I'm not surprised at all that he's getting good reviews. I'm a deep, deep. I mean, this is, you know, right up front, full acknowledgement, deep, deep Shaq head. Shaq can, can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. He's always yeah, had the right so sense dumb. of humor. He's, he is, uh, I love that, that, that he is a man of many pursuits, many interests. He's always down with the people. I'm slightly surprised that he didn't call, there isn't some dish on there called barbecue chicken because that is, their uh his go-to i don't know if it's a it's a if it's a meme it's not really a meme but it is a thing he uses frequently a device he uses frequently on the tnt show with ernie and chuck and kenny to talk about a player that's been roasted you know if if that player can't check uh if if steph curry's out there cooking and somebody's trying to guard him and that player's getting roasted as as happens to lots of guys that try and, and guard steph that that player can be barbecue chicken, or if somebody gets dunked on, that, that player uh, is often referred to as, as barbecue chicken. So I hope there's a barbecue chicken sandwich in there. The only thing about this story that uh, gives me any hesitation or reservation whatsoever, I can't watch it because I will never, under any circumstances, consume anything put out by Facebook because uh, yeah. that I have I have never been a Facebook adopter. I'm on there uh, because I lost a bet. I agree to every friend that, that tries to friend me on there, but I am not a person that traffics in the the, the Facebook uh, space. It's just a personal preference kind of thing. Uh, I just you know have never thought that it was a, a particularly valuable medium for sharing in, in information. Uh, I will say I do like looking at my friends' kids' pictures. It's maybe once every sure. three weeks or so, once a month. 
that's that's what it is. Ex- if it existed on that plane only, then I would be satisfied with it. I am not going on there and watching his program. I hope that they have a rendition of it available on the YouTube, which I will consume gladly. Um, I bet someone has ripped it and put it on YouTube. You can find it. I bet. Okay. I bet. All right. Um, All right. Well, I also just want to say you when we were in Vegas over the summer, you went off strip, I believe, with David Chang as your as your guide. I am usually so paralyzed by the the um, excess of Vegas. I can definitely never make it off the strip except for the Thomas and Mack Center. So I don't know if I'll be going, but who knows? Um, a quick one for well, you. In, if yes. you have uh, I, the only th- the thing I'll observe to you, you and I will be together for summer league again. God willing. Yes, uh, we will. 2019. Let's July. make See a trip. Then. If it's a trip where you know we're going to go to this place and and do it, it doesn't really count as off the strip. It's just a small adventure. And we'll, right. we'll okay. we're going to make a little time and we'll go have our, our we'll go have some shack chicken. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Are you in or are you out? Sour Patch Kids cereal is coming, and uh, yeah, I think that sounds gross. What about you? It sounds uh, gross, but I'm interested in. A little more about the flavor profiles. You can't have sour cereal, can you? Uh, This is what it says, I believe, in a press release. Um, It has kid-shaped pieces glazed with a sour coating that eventually leads to a sweet finish. I feel like this is a cereal intended to eat dry, and I actually like cereal and milk, so I'm not into it. I also don't like Sour Patch Kids, though. Uh, I mean, Sour Patch Kids are okay. I think we should do a... um a movie theater snack ranking at some point. Maybe we'll have Sean Fennessy on Ooh, and the three of us can go ahead and idea. have a conversation around the, the, the current climate in, in movie snacks. Uh, I, that is the only venue in which I'll enjoy a Sour Patch Kids. I don't mind it there because it, it is a helpful way to cut the um, salty uh, popcorn that I've consumed you know, too much of. So uh, halfway through the movie, after I've already crushed the bucket of popcorn, Sour Patch Kids as as a kind of dessert um, is has its has its place and moment in my life. But that's really it. The cereal thing feels like it does not translate. But I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, reserve judgment until we actually sort of see it and I get to lay some eyeballs on it. All right, we can do a taste test of that as well. One new that product that I want to discuss that I'm excited about. Trader Joe's now in the freezer section has French onion soup bites. This mm. is uh, the full title Trader Joe's French onion soup bites, caramelized onions and Swiss cheese. It's like a finger food. You put it on a spoon, serve it at a party. They're bites and you just they're they're uh, they're bite size. What else is there to say? I want to recommend this because while I haven't had it yet, the Trader Joe's frozen French onion soup is one of their best items. And I'm sure this is going to be really good. They do puff pastry. Well, they do frozen food. Well, and they do French onion soup well. So I'm really excited. And I just love Trader Joe's. So shout out Trader Joe's. I, I, I'm I'm also on board with their the the surprisingly high quality of their frozen food items. And I also like this innovation. It feels like we're in a real French onion moment. Lots of folks have been doing um, varieties of, of hamburgers that try and capture the French onion uh, food profile, perhaps none more um, successfully than the gentlemen uh, or folks behind father's office out there in Los Angeles, California. Oh yeah. The, the burger that they serve really is just a French onion kind of full on flavor profile. And the gentleman, uh, the, the, the chef responsible for this 
will not permit uh, ketchup to be served alongside with that burger because ketchup you wouldn't put ketchup in French onion soup. So he just wants you to enjoy the burger the way that he intends for the burger to be enjoyed. But I think that has caught on. I th- I feel like we've been talking on House of Carbs about other hamburgers that have that that French onion profile. It feels like French onion has a lot of different applications. Finger food, the way you've described, a delicious crouton with a beautiful Swiss cheese, as long as the, the <laughs> you can get it gooey enough, and a beautiful, beautiful caramelized indeed. onion. Oh, yes, please. I know. I, I honestly have really high hopes for this, but I, I love Trader Joe's frozen food. As I previously mentioned, they've got a great Korean scallion pancake that I love there. They, I love their soup dumplings. Um, I even buy the fish there sometimes. That's for that's like flash frozen and like you know you defrost it and I grill it up. But a swordfish, I buy it there. It's cheap. I love Trader Joe's do, frozen section. I'm not afraid of that at all. I'm I'm down with that fish. I have a feeling you just mentioned the scallion pancake. You just reminded me. I know what my the best thing I'm going to eat next week is going to be because I'm going with my annual uh, dinner with a uh, uh, Korean family that I grew up with. Uh, in our in our uh, neighborhood in our school, we we get together once a year with uh, the one son that we're in touch with, and he takes us here in the in the DMV, and we tour, we tour around. This is going to be the well, we've done it a whole a, a, a ton of times. I'm, I can't put a number on it because I, I just can't remember how long we've been doing it. Um, but that's coming up this Sunday, and the seafood pancake at the Korean food restaurant always, always, always glorious. So you, it'll be a new, new venue, uh, and I'll have more of a, of a review for you. But you just reminded me that I have this in my future, and I'm very, very thankful for it. That sounds great, and I can't wait to hear about it. I can't wait to tell you more about it. And Juliet, you're going to be uh, in New York for another uh, handful of days, so there will be more New York food for you for yes. you to share potentially with us. Per your uh, recommendation, maybe... I'm going to Gato tonight. I can't wait. That's it. Bobby Flay's Gato. I I, I gave it some shout outs a uh, week ago, and, and maybe you'll have some shout outs for it as well. I'll, I'll let you know how I feel. Talk to you soon, House. Thanks, Juliet. All right, my taste buds. There we go. We have done it. Another episode in the books. Couple things for your consideration. On the way out the door, the cake that I describe in my conversation with Juliet, the best thing I ate last week, it's drunken rum cake. All I could get out of my friend, Kristen Farman, all I could get out of her in terms of the ingredients, eggs, it's, she says four eggs, a stick of uh, a butter, a cup of sugar, and then she, she, she won't give me any other ingredients, but she says... It's a half cup of rum in the cake and then a quarter cup of rum in the glaze. And that just means for her purposes, she triples that. So it is, as I, as I mentioned, it's genuinely a drunken rum cake. It gives you all of that rum flavor that you want for your beautiful holiday season desserts. One other thing as we head out the door, the podcast award opportunity remains. iHeartRadio Podcast Awards House of Carbs has been nominated in the food category. I don't know who paid who, where the payola came from. I'd like to chip in. But you can still go online, www.iheart.com slash podcast awards. Get in there. You're going to be as shocked as I always am. House of Carbs is in there. You can give five votes a day. Jump in there and do it for the hungry homies. How about that? My friends, we shall be back next week. Until then, let's stay hungry out there.